episode 49 of Sass Melt Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. It's about time I introduce myself, hmm? Most women in Hollywood would have shaved their heads, walked on their knees, and dined solely on cottage cheese and celery sticks in order to sign a contract with MGM. Metro was the glossiest studio, the ultimate glamour factory. But for some actors, they did their best work once they left MGM, and certainly that would be the case for Rosalind Russell. When she was in MGM, two of her biggest hits occurred when she was on loanouts to another studio. On loanout to Columbia in 1936, she wound up in a star vehicle courtesy of director Dorothy Arzner. Craig's wife was a big hit and put Roz on the map. The other loanout was uh, also to Columbia for His Girl Friday in 1940. Roz starred in the gender-flipped remake of The Front Page with Cary Grant. Her character, Hildy Johnson, inspired legions of women to become journalists. And she's probably best known today for her performance as the fast-talking, sass-mouthed dame reporter. Even for Roz's best role during her tenure in MGM as Sylvia Fowler in The Women in 1939, she had to fight for it. Roz gave a lengthy audition over a thousand feet of film, where she played the character in multiple interpretations before the director, George Cukor, changed his mind about casting Ilka Chase, who had played the role on Broadway. In her memoir, Life is a Banquet, published in 1977, she said she never really made the A-list in Metro, but rather occupied a position as a second stringer for Murder Loy. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can listen back to episode 27 with both Myrna and Roz in Man Proof from 1938, where I talk more about the star system in Metro and how they used Roz as the stick to keep Myrna in line whenever she asked for their consideration. Roz eventually tired of the routine of settling for Myrna's cast-offs. Once her contract expired with Metro in 1941, she never returned to work in the studio. She explained that Mayer had taken so much offense at her decision to leave, it had forever soured the studio connection. She spent the 1940s alternating between RKO and Columbia for pictures. In Columbia, she made intriguing pictures that gave serious treatment to the dilemmas of working women. Roz noted that every single one of them turned a nice profit. How is anyone surprised that women bought tickets to watch Rosalind Russell boss men around? Far too many critics dismiss those careerist pictures as though they were identical and interchangeable. It's amazing how many critics brush off the genre by saying they were just meant to flatter women who were pushed into the labor market during the war. Once the men returned from the war, films about career women were as passe as wearing a square toe shoe with a circle skirt. Imagine dismissing James Cagney's gangster roles, or Errol Flynn's swashbuckler pictures, or the detective films that Bogart made. What men do on film, and what men in the audience like, rates serious consideration, even if it's just falling down, throwing pies, or shooting guns. Guy stuff matters. Every genre has its familiar tropes and themes, but none seem to rate as low as a woman who is the boss. 
If you added a euro, a pound, or a dollar to a jar, every time you read a snub about a careerist picture, you would have enough for a sun holiday faster than it took Robert Taylor to learn his part for Camille. No one better personified the working woman than Rosalind Russell. She's the patron saint of career girls on screen. In an interview with James Bowden, included in the collection Conversations with Classic Film Stars, Interviews from Hollywood's Golden Era, Roz recalled her career's picture. She said of them, I'm taught that a woman cannot operate like a man, and at the end, I'm trying to get back with the male lead, be it Lee Bowman or Mel Douglas or Brian Ahern. Roz simplifies the action and underestimates her own appeal. The parts when she dominates in the office and has everything in hand are far more memorable than when she finally succumbs to the leading man. The production code may have slapped a conservative ending on Rosalind Russell's characters, but that's not why women continue to draw strength from her professional resolve on screen. Her brainstorming, acumen, and efficiency that she dramatizes carries the restorative power of an afternoon spa session. You would be hard-pressed to find someone her equal today. Today, the industry believes a heroine must be knocked down to the dirt before an audience will root for her. And even when we do see a strong career woman like Miranda Priestly, we're told she's an absolute failure in her private life. Each time someone holds up Kristen Wiig's character in Bridesmaids as a classic woman's picture protagonist, I must unclench my jaw before my teeth are ground to dust. Rather than see one more loser on screen, why not remind ourselves that once women like Rosalind Russell loomed large above men on screen, she had the sass mouth, was quick on the comeback, had the bona fides, the best ideas, the whip-smart campaign, plus stylish suits, installed in the enviable career. In our current era of precarious labor, short-term contracts, and economic uncertainty, don't we need to see the return of the boss ladies Rosalind Russell brought to life? She always looked the part. Ros noted that the key to her suits in looking so good were having three separate fittings to each one, so they never seemed mannish, and she always added a brooch to the lapel. She also confessed in the interview with Bowden that she had no idea how the studio managed to keep her hair so high. Viewers can chart the rise in her character's ambitions with the height of her hair in a smooth rolled updo. The higher the hair, the closer the corner office. Roz must have had the ladder of success tucked in her glossy tresses as scaffolding for her upward trajectory. Rosalind Russell's pictures throughout the 1940 offer a blueprint for surviving in a man's world. When Ross plays the boss lady, she takes no prisoners. During Take a Letter Darling from 1942 for prime example, Ross stands half-naked in a slip in front of a mirror watching boutique clerks dress her slender form in an evening gown. At the same time, she's dictating orders at Fred McMurray, who stands in the corner, scarlet for your ma, writing down her directions with a tiny pencil. For women in the audience, it's like watching the invention of the wheel. Between His Girl Friday in 1940 and A Woman of Distinction in 1950, Ross starred in 12 films that explored challenges for professional women. 
She gives us so many inspirational scenes to revisit in our nine to five hours of need. She played a reporter, an executive secretary, an advertising executive, a judge, a writer, a pilot, a literary agent, a business school graduate, a psychiatrist, an actress, a lawyer, and a professor and university dean. She showed women how to be bold rather than demure. The popular magazines and guidebooks of the era told women to downplay their intelligence and their talent in order to land a man, but Roz jettisons the dainty gestures and adopts a power pose, and she gets the man. With a Vulcan-forged spine, she towers over men in stature, intelligence, and achievements. Viewers just need to forget about the plot points that adhere to the production code. Roz eventually settles down with a man, but it hardly plays out like she's submissive. Studios should never underestimate the perennial allure of watching a supremely confident woman get stuff done. In What a Woman from 1943, although Roz is at the top of her game as a literary agent who also dabbles in Hollywood casting, with facts, figures, and projections at the ready, she's no button-down square. Her character, Carol Ainsley, is no corporate clone. She's educated, cosmopolitan, and stylish. Travis Banton did her wardrobe. He doesn't simplify Roz's wardrobe to a series of power suits with massive shoulder wingspans. There's no exaggeration with chevron stripes or outrageous hats, as she wore in His Girl Friday, to accentuate a no-nonsense, serious-minded reporter. She doesn't look like she's trying to copy a man in What a Woman. For each outfit, Travis Banton includes touches that soften the hard edges of a business look. He uses a little veil or a hat, uh, a fur jacket to soften the angular cut of a suit, or a simple dressing gown or evening gown. In other words, there's no indication from the way she dresses that her character is trying to be like a man in order to succeed in business. Before we meet Carol Ainsley, some man in publishing defines what she does for a living. We're up to speed on her CV, so she doesn't need to waste time explaining her qualifications. Give men the task of exposition. A magazine editor assigns Brian Ahern to write a profile on Carol, which is justified, he says, because she's responsible for finding the manuscript, the whirlwind, the novel that became a national bestseller. Since no one knows who the author is, it was written under a pen name, the editor reasons that the literary agent would be an interesting person to feature for their magazine. She's one of those 10 percenters, the editor explains. Everyone knows, he says, that artists can't be expected to make good business deals for themselves. Agents step in to broker the contracts and then take a 10% commission for themselves. Brian Ahern's character, Henry Pepper, wants to pass on the assignment, saying that he prefers his women after office hours. What changes his mind is when the editor says that Carol doesn't allow her women clients to have babies. Ahern's reaction tells us that he wants to clap eyes on the monster who thinks she can cheat Mother Nature. Ahern's Mr. Pepper inserts himself into Carol Ainsley's uh, busy office with a hat pulled low over his eyes and a pipe stuck in his mouth, and he observes a delicious bit of office choreography. The next time you think about office culture as beige and conformist, remember the striking decor of Rosalind Russell's office. A series of room leads into a private chamber. First, there's the switchboard center that has headshots of successful clients on the wall. 
which leads to a reception area, which has a framed portrait of Carol Ainsley behind the secretary's desk, and also what looks like a porcelain bust of the 10 percenter on a sideboard. Carol's office is decorated with modern folk art that resembles the work of Diego Rivera. And then she has a private bath and powder room beyond her desk. Five staff members fan out around Carol's desk after she takes a seat, attentive to her orders as though she were Brigadier General. Carol's problem is that the whirlwind is being adapted to the screen, and she's in charge of finding the leading man. A nationwide search has been fruitless. One of Carol's flunkies fans out an accordion file full of candidates who missed the mark. He stretches it out with a flash of theatricality, as though he were an old vaudevillian ready to brandish a saw at a bespangled showgirl. The three men and two women want to please the ten percenter with suggestions and accolades. E.F. Hutton had nothing on Carol Ainsley. Carol's secretary wants to soothe her harried boss by running a bath. Their bits of business establish Rosalind Russell's character as high-powered and someone who can make someone else's career. Carol's private office features an ornate gold filigree coffee service, and with the modern art, it suggests a cultured woman. She has an imagination outside the nine-to-five routine of the cash nexus. She doesn't have some corporate art palette that signals wealth acquisition, cutesy mottos or phrases or pictures, or evidence of the picket fence nuclear family sentiment that dominated during wartime. Carol's personal space reflects an educated woman who seeks life beyond Madison Avenue and Wall Street. In her stylish flat, the canvas that takes center stage features a topless African woman wearing a bolt of silk around her hips, standing next to a panther. Rather than argue this is proof of othering, I'd say in her private space, it suggests a depth of imagination and sensuality to Carol Ainsley. I'm surprised even that the censors in the Breen office permitted the painting to remain. Not only is it clearly sexual, it also suggests a separate sexual agency without the addition of men or their fantasies. The art direction was led by Lionel Banks, who had been nominated for an Academy Award seven times for his work on pictures such as Holiday, Ladies in Retirement, Talk of the Town, and Cover Girl. The sets and costumes tell the viewer that Rosalind Russell is far more interesting than either of the men who've come to form the love triangle. It doesn't take long for Carol to solve her own dilemma, as we expect. She'll simply hunt down the author of the novel and proceed from there. Willard Parker plays Michael Cobb, a college professor who secretly wrote the novel under a pen name that became the bestseller. When she first sees Michael Cobb, she stops short of making the auga sounds. But the register of her voice splutters into a deep, flat monotone, which is Roz's way of saying she's overcome by his good looks. Cobb is certainly tall, but he doesn't really have the profile of a leading man, and to say that he's bloodless would be an insult to the exsanguinated. Carol Ainsley decides that only Cobb can star in the picture adapted from his book. He's living in a small town in a grubby boarding house where women aren't allowed beyond the lobby. Both aesthetically and sexually, he's a cold fish. When it comes time to prep Michael for his studio screen test, he's a dud. 
even though he's surrounded by a team of pros who are there to make him look good. Roz shines in the scene when she coaxes him through it. She intuits that he's far too cerebral for his own good. Since he can't seem to progress beyond merely flashing the lines that he wrote, Roz breaks it down for him. Acting is just pretending, she says. It's the little lie you tell to be polite. Acting exercises basic feelings that everyone has. Her voice is soothing and uplifting at the same time, and Cobb responds to her delicate coaching. Once he's installed in her flat, Michael acts as though he's the delicate maiden whose virtue is in jeopardy. Roz holds the position of the one with more experience. She's the worldly and sexual one. While he hides in the bedroom, she entertains the adults in her living room, which is surrounded by good books and art. Slowly, she begins to realize the wisdom and the old folk saying about not judging a book by its cover. Michael might look like a swoon merchant, but he's a gigantic boy, raw, unformed, and dull. Michael warms to Carol, though, in a way that comes to repel her over time. Women, we're told, don't really wish for the power to make a Galatea the way men want to do. Grown women want an equal, not someone they have to take by the hand in school. Brian Hearn, on his part, exhibits a reserve that saves the best for a second look. She may have rankled at his bad manners about a hat indoors, but on second thought, isn't he more honest, and isn't it better to have him around than a yes man? And so what if he likes to keep his hat on if he has a quick imagination? Plus, he's good looking. They have a rapport. Pepper has enough taste to display bad taste for bow ties. Even though he may be coarse, he's super observant, and he listens, which is far beyond what the professor seems able to muster. At one point, Carol scoffs of Mr. Hearn's pepper. That man is an epidemic, she says, but maybe she's feeling a little feverish? Granted, Brian Hearn is a fickle actor on screen. He can leave me as cold as his competition in this picture. But when he decides to turn it on the charm, he's like that crunch of leaves under your feet in October. Familiar, but fresh and welcome. He's very good in this. Much more appealing than when they did Hired Wife together in 1940. You can find it with a Google search for What a Woman, 1943, OK.RU. It's also worth noting here that the assistant director, Abby Berlin, went on to have a robust career as a director in her own right. Although she died tragically young when she was only 58, she directed nine of the Blondie pictures made during the 1940s. She also directed Marsha Hunt in the picture Mary Ryan Detective from 1949, where Marsha Hunt plays a police officer who solves a case about jewelry fence racket. The Russians have it also, and it's totally worth your time. Abby then moved on to directing television in the 1950s for programs such as Blondie, The Life of Riley, Lassie, and The Ann Southern Show. If you keep your eye out during this picture, you'll also see Shelley Winters appear in an uncredited role as a secretary. What a Woman was Shelley's second film credit. After she finished this picture, Roz collapsed. She had given birth to her son, Lance. Then Roz said she suffered from a thyroid condition, but which her husband, Freddie Brisson, later said was postpartum depression. 
She was so exhausted from a taxing schedule between studio production and her role entertaining troops for the war effort. She noted, I couldn't do anything, my most depressing period, as work was everything to me. I went to Palm Springs and stayed there for a year. Rosalind Russell's next picture wasn't until 1945, when she made Roughly Speaking with Jack Carson. I'll close the episode with a funny scene from Roz's Life as a Banquet. It was during this period that the National Federation of Businesswomen invited me to make a speech at a convention which was being held at the Cal Palace in San Francisco. Those women scared the daylights out of me. They were all college deans and women judges and politicians with the PhDs falling off them, and they were having four speakers, one of whom was Claire Booth Luce. I figured she'd tell them how to run the government, but what was I going to talk about? I finally decided to stick with what I knew and explain to my sister executives how superior the on-screen life of a career woman was as compared to the real life of a career woman. How many phones do you have on your desks? I asked them. Two, three, four? Well, I have at least 12. When I play a newspaper editor, I tear up the front page twice every edition. When I play a lawyer, I win every case. Every picture I'm in begins with eight or ten men sitting around me, begging me to speak, to tell them what to do, how to think. And there's always one with a hat down over his eyes, and he says, very interesting, MJ, very interesting. And I say, who are you? Have you been sitting there during this entire meeting? And he saunters out, still murmuring, very interesting. I give more orders in one morning than you girls give in a month. Then I go to lunch with my hat on and my sables over my arm. After lunch, I usually have a fitting, and then it's the weekend, and I go to my country place. If my country place is in the mountains, uh, I need snow boots, but if it's on Long Island, a skirt and sweater will do. Sometimes the studio fools me and puts me on a boat, and I go to Europe, but I never go back to the office after lunch. The businesswomen had a good time, and so did I, once I'd heard the first laughs. I told them I could order the clothes for my pictures in my sleep. I'd say to Jean-Louis, Adrian, Irene, or Travis Banton, make me a plaid suit, a striped suit, a gray flannel, and a negligee for the scene in the bedroom when I cry. I even did the dialogue from a typical love scene for them. The guy sang to me, underneath it all, you're very feminine. And my saying to him, please, Richard, I must go on with my work. So many depend on me. But don't envy me, I told the businesswomen. Because in the end, I always give the whole thing up, marry the guy with the hat down over his eyes, move to New Jersey, and live in a mosquito-ridden cottage with a picket fence and a baby carriage outside. Why, I'll never know, except that they pay me well. I don't think the career women I played would be acceptable today. Doris Day came along and made the same kind of picture, but by then they were able to put in more sex, more bedroom stuff. We sometimes indicated a bed, but the camera would go over it very fast, one post, part of a headboard, and we seldom got into one. If we did get into one, we had a more clothes than you'd need for the North Pole. I'm often asked my opinion about the new permissiveness in film, the pornography, the totally naked people. I think the pendulum has swung so far in the direction as a violent reaction to the kind of ridiculous censorship that we had to put up with. 
I made a film in which I was married to Walter Pigeon, and for one scene, I was in bed in a nightgown, which nobody could see because it was covered by a marabou bed jacket, hotter than the hinges of hell. And I had a bed tray in front of me, piled with breakfast dishes and a newspaper. There were eight lights streaming down on me, so I was sweating, suffocating, having to be mopped by the makeup man every few minutes. And along came Walter in his business suit with a briefcase under one arm. And he reached over to kiss me goodbye, and they wouldn't allow it because I was in bed. That's how severe and unrealistic the code was in the 40s. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time when I talk about Joan Crawford and Female on the Beach from 1955.